Welcome back, Seaweed Brain listeners, to a legitimately, extremely special episode of Seaweed Brain. When we started this podcast three and a half years ago, this was the dream. This was the goal. This is our first official, official Disney Plus Percy Jackson episode. We are going to be covering the press conferences we have been attending for the past two weeks, all in this episode today. So we're gonna have audio clips from Rick and Becky, from the showrunners, the director, um, the production designer, the costume designer, and the VFX supervisor, all in today's episode. Stick around. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm assuming we've got new listeners today, so we're going to introduce ourselves. I'm Erica, co-host of this podcast, joined as always by... Me, Carter. Hi, I'm the other co-host of this podcast. The non-producer co-host, if you will. Yeah, the smart one. Um, I think we introduced ourselves this evening at the Met by... Somebody was like, what are your names again? Because I know you're Seaweed Brain. And I was like, well, I'm Seaweed and Carter is Brain. Which I can't believe is a joke I haven't made before in three and a half years of doing this. Because I'm definitely Seaweed. (laughs) And Carter's definitely brain. Anyway, if we seem really exhausted, it's because it's 2.30 a.m. And we got home from the Met tonight attending the premiere. And I really have to say, I don't know how we got invited. Um, Actually, I do know because I know specifically who did. And shout out to Brett at DKC. (laughs) Not to dox Brett. But shout out to the people who thought in their publicity working plan that they should include the podcasters because it was really nice of them. And like, objectively speaking, we don't have 400,000 followers on TikTok. You know what I mean? They -hmm. could have just invited influencers, but they also invited podcasters, which I think was really sweet. I think it was very nice. I think that strategically, conceptually, I think it makes sense to value depth as a dimension of Mm -hmm. engagement in addition to breadth, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Watching the TV show is important. Mm-hmm. They're trying to sell merch. They are trying to generate engagement. They're trying to generate content that is going to grab other people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even if we're not trying to shoot our own horn, the people who we spent a lot of the night with were very lovely, thoughtful people who are doing really interesting, creative work. Yeah, I really have to say, like, first of all, it was the best night ever, and we could do an entire episode just recapping the premiere event which i guess we'll include in this episode honestly right now but like the probably among the most incredible interactions and things that happened tonight were just that most of the people we talked to on the creative side if not every single person we spoke to from the creative team of this show when we introduced ourselves and said we had a podcast they were like oh my gosh so what did you think we really want to know like it's okay <laughs> you can be critical like tell us what you thought it's really important to know what you guys people who know these books so well and care so much about this property really thought from of the show. And since this is the embargo lift episode, we're allowed to say <laughs> it's really good, you guys. Oh my gosh. We're only allowed to vaguely talk about episodes one and two. Which were the two episodes that they were screening at the premiere event. Yes. Related. Yes. Premiere was today mm-hmm. as we're recording embargo lifts in seven hours. Yes. Will have lifted at the time we are dropping this. And truly, I think when we hopped on a little call together to watch the first couple episodes, the main feeling was like great relief. Like that we have been so excited for this for so long and that it is everything that we hoped that it would be. And that's not even, 
that's not even like the rose colored glasses because I've now watched the first couple episodes like several like like bordering <laughs> on on half a dozen times and it, they are really just so well crafted and I, I think we watched the screeners kind of in the middle of this press process so some of the earlier interviews we were listening we were present and sitting in on I was like, oh, wow, they really put a lot of thought into this. And then once I got to see the first couple episodes, listening to the showrunners talk, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, it is so evident. We have an audio clip here that we'll play about how much time they really got to put into thinking about the character arcs of each of these characters and where they wanted to get in each episode. And I think that that is probably what is jumping out to me most right now is that every episode is so clean and so precise and specific. There's not like a piece of dialogue that is out of place. And they move along brilliantly very well paced the pacing is amazing the television craft is good oh it's stunning to look at it's so beautiful the, the dan BFX. shots if you will <laughs> <laughs> shout out to you dan people asked us like again as they were saying they were like tell us what you didn't like <laughs> it would be okay yeah they were like and tell we us we really want to know and be like we'll think of something but for now eventually Something will set it. Eventually, I'll have like a minor critique of something specific or maybe later on in the season, I'll be like, oh, this didn't get where I wanted it to be. But these first couple episodes, man, they're brilliantly done they're, and so emotionally affecting. And they're very, very good. They're very, very fulfilling. I, I think the question a lot of people are going to have about this is probably what is the relationship between the TV show and the book, right? Yeah. I think the relationship is that it is a very very strong work of adaptation, meaning that it is not an exact facsimile. There will be scenes that you love from the book that don't make sense in a TV show, and they're not in the TV show. Mm -hmm. Some people might find that upsetting. I think that we're both very strongly in favor of that, that it's like a creative, thoughtful mm -hmm. process that requires a lot of skill yeah. and craft yes. to so know how to do that. much craft went into this adaptation from choosing what to keep in choosing what to leave out and then choosing where to add brand new material in yes which there is there's a lot of stuff whole scenes conversations relationships dimensions conversations that take place in the world that you could conceivably believe happened or even and especially things that did happen in the lightning thief but we never got to witness because they happen when percy is not present yeah. like scenes between other characters where percy isn't there you get to witness those conversations that maybe were alluded to like off stage or weren't alluded to but you could assume they might have happened yeah and, ev and even stuff with um scenes with walker like scenes with percy that were never in the book it but could have been and are so clever Mm -hmm. especially in adjusting the timing because we aren't in like a 300 page book. We are in a eight, eight episode series. Like some things you do want to like, Oh, this is where Percy needs his, I want scene to like establish mm -hmm. his objective. Like being able to add those things in, it just reads that Rick was there every second, every yes. step of the way. Dan said something to us this evening that Dan shots, one of the showrunners. He was like, you know, I've worked on a lot of projects throughout my life i'm obviously different. paraphrasing but <laughs> i worked on a lot of projects and even for like national treasure he said mm -hmm. he was like even for the national treasure feature films nothing like this gesturing to the gigantic decked out met nothing yeah. like this ever happened like this was a very special event i feel like a lot of people said that like the the, the energy from the people who were part of the creative team on this was so like reverent yeah. like, we had this lovely conversation with Sonia, who 
is she um, works for the volume she yeah does work for the volume and she basically told us that she has worked on all of these hundreds of billions of dollar franchises properties before the volume has been around i don't know if it's appropriate for us to like say what she name dropped but like the volume has been around it's a disney thing you can look things up Mm -hmm. and yet she was like my niece only the only thing that impressed her and brought her (laughs) into these conversations with me was percy Percy Jackson. jackson And she read the books because yes. her niece was like, you need to. Yes. It really feels like everybody who's working on this show, from the creative team to the cast, it's like the cast grew up reading these books and they're obsessed with them as fans. And the creatives either are also fans or their kids are fans or their nieces and nephews are fans. And they feel this extreme responsibility yes. to do right by the fans. Truly, like what we said earlier, they just everybody really wanted to know what we thought. And it was like jarring and like so sweet <laughs> we I, I, met a couple of people who really like were from fan world like there there was an associate producer who was like not that much older than us or like roughly our age who grew up with the books there was a writer on the show who is literally our hero <laughs> our hero somebody who was originally a fan podcaster yes. for a tv show that some of the executive producers... I mean, Daphne might be listening to this. So Daphne, if you're listening to this, you're our hero. It was um. amazing to me. But then also to be like, that is implicitly... Re- like when she ended up introducing us to somebody else who was an executive producer on the show, he was like, oh, podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> you know? They were like, tell us, tell us what the podcasts think. What did you think? And that, okay. So that leads us to... We had this second iteration of this conversation with John Steinberg, executive producer, um, showrunner. He was like, what did you really think? And I was like, it meant a lot. There were themes that were brought to the forefront of this season in the first episode. The theme of monstrosity. Who is a monster, et cetera, because that's something that really comes to the forefront of the Sea of Monsters and the House of Hades. But you see that develop almost more slowly throughout the Riot Inverse books. But in this series, it is like brought in right away and is so nailed on the head. And this is something, if you're a seaweed brain listener, like, you know, we talked about this a lot during the sun and the star. Yeah. It's become like one of the most important parts of the series to me. And it is crisp. It's clear. You can understand mm-hmm. all of the emotional dynamics and the ideas yeah. and the world building facets that yeah. all feed into this. And also I think that the way that they bring it into a plot propulsion and a character development tie-in is so smart. So brilliant. And so strong. Very effective. I think we can say and tease that episode three is going to be a banger of an episode to discuss. That's all we can say. But episode three is going to be a banger. And when I said this to John tonight, I'll play the audio from the interview the other day. But when I said it to John tonight, he was like, that is probably the most important part about this series to me Mm -hmm. is this idea of, monsters and who is a monster and i was like i'm so like the ability you guys (laughs) the ability to connect with the actual people making this show it's surreal like we if i I mean if i was making the show i would want to talk to the podcasters obviously because Mm -hmm. i know that i would know that the podcasters (laughs) know these books the best and so it's just kind of having that like validation like we are all looking at the same text here and Mm -hmm. we are all pulling out the same things Mm -hmm. that was really really special i think we should play our first clip we asked a question about a very specific monologue that sally delivers to percy in the very opening moments of the pilot episode um discussing monsters and and who is and isn't a monster and this is what john steinberg said that scene broke easily 
um, I think uh, the idea that we were going to start this show with a conversation about um, monstrousness and um, have it be have it come in from the voice of someone who seemed like they had a lot to say about it uh, uh, felt right and important and of the books while not literally being in the books and um, and sort of the right the right tone to set uh, and it bleeds through the show. I mean, I think you know the first the first monster we meet really gets spent any time with, which is Medusa felt like the right one. I mean, Rick put her there for a variety of reasons in the book, but um, she really felt like the right character to um, be the first test case, um, you know, the first study. Um, what is a monster? Um, and, and how do you approach one? Um, how do you define one? So, yeah, I mean, very, very aware of it and, and excited about it. And frankly, excited for the rest of these stories. It's, a, it's an idea that continues to evolve in these books. Um, and, uh, you know, Percy's sidekick in, in the second book is, is a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lord, hopefully somebody will let us, let us tell this story. <laughs> yes. First of all... <laughs> Disney Plus executives seated and listening to this podcast. Yeah, because we did give the name of this podcast to several Disney Plus or Disney branded television people tonight. It's time to greenlight season two, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. You need not. Oh, my God. You did not hear that it's greenlit. But Disney execs, you heard that you should greenlight it. Yeah. Is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. The authorities have spoken. The authorities have spoken. Um, I loved when he said the idea of monstrosity from somebody who has some thoughts and feelings about it. You yeah. know, we said perspective. That's what you were saying about like using these themes to propel character forward and relationships. Mm -hmm. It's so well done. And then this segued into um, a little bit more elaboration on the character of Medusa. To me, that was one of the toughest puzzles of the project was Medusa. Um, you do the Minotaur and it's complicated, but everybody kind of knows, everybody has a job to do. And, and, and it's a huge technical exercise with a huge team. And Medusa didn't want that. The more you tried to design her as a, as a, as a creature, the less interesting she got to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a minute to back out of that process and start to realize that what we were really trying to figure out is who she is and what she looks like. And that the Medusa that I had seen um, in, in the iterations that I was familiar with leaned heavy on the monster. And even when she was, um, you know, portrayed in a more human form, um, she's this very imposing, and tall kind of a presence. And the moment Jess popped into my head, um, everything clicked into place. And, um, that doesn't look like that. That doesn't sound like that. I want to hear that woman tell a story about how she got this way and care. And so, you know, I, I think, um, you know, and then once you crack it, then everybody has a job to do. And then Tish can go and design a really remarkable piece of wardrobe. <laughs> and Vizivax yeah. knows what they're doing with the snakes because we're not trying to make them scary anymore. We're trying to make them feel as natural as possible. And in a little bit feel like, you know what the worst part of having snakes for areas is you have snakes for areas. 
<laughs> That's like an experience of being a mentor. So I think sometimes it's that you try to solve yeah. 30 problems and you can't because there's one problem hiding in the middle that needs to get clicked before yeah. the rest of the yeah. Don't you just love creative people? I mean, that was so satisfying. Wasn't that just a masterclass in adaptation and writing for TV and producing a story? Like everything about that is right. Right? It's saying every department, every technical mm. exercise that we're doing here is in service of a message and yes. a story uh -huh. and a broader fundamental truth that we were trying to instantiate here yeah. in a way that feels compelling. Yeah. I, it shows leadership, uh -huh. it shows vision, and it shows specifically, I think, a strong gut level. To me, like, uh, th this is like the kernel of adaptation, is that like good adaptation isn't faithful, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? It is, do you understand the story? Like, mm -hmm. are you interested in trying to say as clearly and cleanly as possible in the chosen medium, time, set of actors, mm -hmm. set of technical workers, everything? Mm -hmm. Like, are you trying to tell core kernel of the original story with these new constraints and new conditions and new challenges and opportunities and everything as effectively as possible. And that's what this is saying. This is somebody saying, I know what we're supposed to be trying to say with Medusa and what we're supposed to be trying to do with these characters. Mm -hmm. And everything has to be downstream yeah. of finding the uh -huh. cleanest, rightest way yeah. to present her. Yeah to retool the yes. way that she shows up in the original books. Mm -hmm. I just love the the bravery and like the showrunners are literally the coolest people because it combines executive producing and writing in the most beautiful way and you have to have all these skills not only in like leadership to organize all these different groups of people but you're also like in many ways you're the head writer so like real like realizing that you're all working towards something and it's not working and having the ability to like be like okay we need to pause and go back to the drawing board and think like why isn't this working to solve the one problem that then solves all the other problems is so brilliant and the, when we talk about bravery i when we talk about adaptation the courage to say the original version of the story is good, but that's not going to serve our purposes right yeah, now. Yeah, and maybe not this particular thing from the original story is not what we want in this version of it now. It's right. Yeah. It's important. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to do it. Somebody has to do it. And they did it. And the product is great. Oh, and we wow. are we, going to... We, we have to be careful because we can't talk about that yet. We can't, but we can share a clip of uh, Tish, the <laughs> incredible costume designer, uh, talking about... Medusa's costume, which everybody has seen because that's part of the press photos. Mm -hmm. um, I really wanted to know about the gorgeous hat veil. Yeah. And so this is what she said. When I uh, first had my initial discussions about Medusa, our two executive uh, creative producers really wanted her to appear sympathetic. They wanted her to have... Um, you know, a, a beautiful hat that could be on a slant that could cover her, you know, hair, her snakes, so that it it, it didn't have to be the kind of, of reveal that was stated in the, 
in the book. So her wearing a hat then dictated a certain kind of, of garment and as, as well as thinking about the kind of empathy that they wanted the audience to have. I also was trying to think of the statues that were going to be surrounding her when she reveals herself to the kids. So I kept thinking of, okay, this is like a human statue walking through the statues that that she's surrounded by. And so that was specifically why I wanted to um, create a garment that had um, a lot of tiny narrow pleats that again were a little bit more reminiscent of Greek antiquity in the, in the statues and and then decided to replicate it in a dress that was almost like a 1920s, 1930s style, but would harken back to imagery that you can look at from ancient Greek clothing. And that was my inspiration. I realized what it feels like we're doing right now. It is Lion King one and a half. Oh my God. Right? You mean waiting for Godot? <laughs> so, oh no, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Where we're like, we're watching and interjecting. Also, Carter said we I need to make it more clear. to Timon and Pumbaa before. Yes. I'm Pumbaa. <laughs> um, Carter was like, you need to make it more clear that these are answers to specific questions that you asked. Um, but the reason we don't have the audio of us asking them is because our kings at um, the publicity company asked them for us. Uh, but these are questions that we asked. And so after uh, Tish went on that beautiful explanation about the slanted hat. Um, Dan Henna, the production designer, jumped in and spoke a bit about Medusa as well. And uh, one of the things that we haven't just touched on yet is that she actually needed that veil so that the kids wouldn't get turned to stone because the veil was between her eyes and them until, until she lifted the veil and they turned to stone. And I mean, that was uh, one of the, the sort of fun things about her house was going down into her cellar where we had all of these uh, statues. And uh, they we call them statues, but they were actually people who had been turned to stone. So uh, creating those was a bit of fun. We, we did scan a whole lot of people in various costumes and things, and then we um, 3D modeled them uh, and painted them a stone color. Uh, oh, I just want to make, can I make one more uh, quick point about um, the veil? The, the day before we finished constructing the, the hat and my um, tailor had hand sewn the veil, the netting onto the hat, underneath the hat band. And it took her three to four hours to get it all precise. And then when we went to the set and the um, actress showed up with the hat on, the DP, thinking ahead, said, I'd actually like the veil on the other side. <laughs> on the other side! <laughs> and, and we have like uh, half an hour to filming. Anyway, we, so I had to like unpick it, turn it around to the other side, tilt the hat, <laughs> and I've got photographs to show it. But. <laughs> 
I am thoroughly obsessed with Tish Monahan. She <laughs> coming from like the theater world, you know, and like my mom is very passionate about costume designing. She did that for she helped out with costumes a lot for all the theater productions I used to be in. Like my I just was thinking about my mom every time no. Tish opened her mouth and being like, "Oh, this is so real." Like stopping production to like fix, you know, or having to be like, "Oh my god, that I had to switch it to the other I have to side." Switch it to the other side. <laughs> Um, a fun peek behind the curtain today is that as we were prepping for this premiere, Erica's mom uh, texted and said, you need to Sharpie the bottom edge of the shoe. Yes. So that the whole shoe from the front looks about black. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing. That a costume designer will notice. <laughs> yeah. Like the very bottom sole of the shoe was visible when I was facing forward because it like turns up at the bottom. And she was like, you need to take a Sharpie and color it black so that it doesn't like break up the line of your leg. Yeah. That. Yes. It was lovely to hear this amount of detail. Yes. Craft. Literally. Craft is important. Also, for me, I think that I understand how TV works and stuff like that to a degree as like an actor. But like even at Comic-Con when Tish was talking about hand dyeing all mm. of those Camp Half-Fledge shirts orange and like hand crafting a pair of tidy whitey underwear to the go minotaur. on the, the Minotaur that they were filming with, you know, like the mechanical bull, like... The fact that like, even though you are the costume designer and your name is in the credits, you are there on set all the yeah. time. Like you are hands on. It's for some reason in my head, my conception of that was like, oh, you design it, but then other people take care of the physical aspect of it. Like, no, that woman was dying orange shirts in a giant soup pot and ladling <laughs> them like a witch's brew. Like that is the level of collaboration that was taken on. I yeah. think we have a clip an audio clip about this, about collaboration and how important that was in the series. Roll the tape. Yeah, look, uh, you know, the whole the whole series was about collaboration and, and close collaboration, not only with the visual effects, but also obviously Tish and I were, were very close about what was what we were planning and 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 with cinematography because uh, that area uh, was integral to visual effects, but, uh, you know, our, our process was we had a lot of meetings. We, all the concept art that was coming through continuously was uh, open to everybody to look and to comment on. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it was all about collaboration and being, and knowing, you know, what they, what uh, everyone else was uh, attempting to do. Okay, so speaking of collaboration, we just realized we haven't played any Rick and Becky clips yet. <laughs> and that you, listener, might... I, it's probably going to be the tax description of the episode, but, like, you might not have heard us mention yet that we talked to Rick and Becky. Wish we did. When I tell you that this was... One of the we... most profound experiences of my life. Erica called me on the phone <laughs> on Friday and was like, do you... Are you... Are you prepared? <laughs> for some news. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Did I? Multiple. Erica called me three times on the phone on Friday because it was a big news day. We had a lot of news. <laughs> but specifically, Erica was like, we... Yeah. We're going to talk to Rick. Yeah. It's wild. We... Now... Did we ask any questions? Did we unmute? No. No, Brett asked them for us, but we love Brett. Brett's our king. Thank you, Brett. <laughs> it was an amazing opportunity. We did we have our camera cameras on. on. 
Okay, the best part about this is that we had no idea what it was going to be like. We didn't know if it was going to be a press conference thing with a lot of other like professional, actual reporters and members of the press or what. But then we found out that we had been given the same time slot as a bunch of our friends. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it ended up being just a little gaggle of podcasters. And it was so sweet because um, like doing something cool is one thing, but getting to do something cool with your friends mm-hmm. who you like have a relationship with because you all have this shared interest and we could have all been like very competitive and like isolated in doing our different Percy Jackson podcasts. But like all of us just decided, you know, on our own that that's not what we wanted. Like we wanted to all be friends. And so we became friends in real life. And so then when this thing happened, we were able to communicate it about, communicate about it immediately and like organize ourselves and organize our questions so that no one had overlap. And we all got to like send in our list of questions that we wanted about very specific things. Mm -hmm. And then we all got to like be in a zoom room together with Rick and Becky. And it was so cute and sweet. And there were so many things that they said that like really just made my face feel warm and my heart melt. Speaking of collaboration, one of those things was Rick really, really bringing Becky into the spotlight. Yeah. Yes. And the two of them both said in quick succession, like very, I think, profound things about the level and the nature of Becky's engagement historically and on this project that I think we're going to play now. Yeah, let's play it. I think my my biggest revelation and delight was just how great it is to get Becky uh, out into the world as an executive producer. Instead of a behind-the-scenes kind of producer. Yeah, and to sort of let everybody appreciate just how integral you are to everything Percy Jackson, because none of this would have happened without you. And to see you kind of step into that role and be so good at it. Uh, was really amazing to me. Right. It takes it takes a lot for people to understand that this is our story mm-hmm. versus Rick's story. Right. So I, I have an opportunity to to talk about that. So that's been nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think we decided we're saving the Rick and Becky Persebeth question for the very end of the episode, as per usual seaweed brain rules. Gotta end the episode with, with, with the question. Oh. But wasn't that fun? Don't we want to hear Rick and Becky answer some more of our questions? Um, one of the questions we asked was about the nature of storytelling and the fact that Percy Jackson is based on myths and legends that have been retold throughout the years. And now Percy Jackson itself is getting its own multiple variations and retellings and that is so special and like what I was like I wanted to know like what does that feel like what does it mean to you to be such a gigantic part of upholding like mythology and that area of American culture like how does it feel to be in that tradition of storytelling and this was the response I was talking with a a group of um, mythology students at Harvard a couple of weeks ago I was invited to talk to a class about that very question. And they asked me, do I feel ownership over the mythology? And I said, no, not, not ownership, just I'm, I'm one of the stewards. I'm, I'm one of the people trying to keep these myths alive right. and to reinterpret them and introduce them to uh, a new generation of young people. Um, so it's not really about, about my version versus all the other versions. This is, in the best sense, public domain. Right. This it belongs is, to everybody. It belongs to everybody. Mm-hmm. It really does. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to contribute to that tradition uh, is is a pretty huge and, honor. And being a storyteller. 
I mean, yeah, that's, that's really what, what this is. All, is all about. All the way back mm-hmm. to Homer. We're talking right. about sitting around the fire and telling great stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick ad break, and then we're going to learn about Tish's favorite costume or one of her favorite looks to design, which was my favorite story that she told. And then we have more Rick. I should also say I felt very validated when Rick was like, oh, they asked me this question at Harvard last week. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes! <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> um, we love to think about the grand tradition of storytelling, you know? You I, really love to. I, I love to. I love to. Okay, this was probably the thing I have not stopped thinking about the most from the last week of anecdotes and press conferences is to sharing about this costume in i think it's episode two my favorite costume to design because it was so rewarding was the costume of um helena which um she was a tree dryad because it was so complicated to make it was based on an actual tree that the locations department i guess you dan had a hand in 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 choosing and we um photographed it we reproduced the bark we reproduced the moss that was on the ground we reproduced the look of the tree roots and we in combination with special effects makeup transformed an actress into a tree um and i didn't want her and like no diss i didn't want her to be like group i wanted her to be elegant i wanted her to be completely believable i wanted her to be of that tree world i wanted it to be a complete revelation when you first see her move that oh my god you know that's that's a woman and it was just uh i i couldn't have been any happier with the result and i think i mentioned it to somebody else um that uh, you know i was speaking to earlier that i was there when they filmed helena up against the actual tree in the forest and they were getting ready to, you know, directors getting ready to say action. And I was like, halt, Um, (laughs) you have to have her stand so that the lines of her dress, you know, follow like the lines of the tree. So I said, she has to tilt forward a little bit. Her hand has to be extended in, in, in such a way in order for that magical transformation to be able to work and then you know when I saw it on camera I was like this is so awesome so that's my favorite costume I think there were lots when she said no shade to Groot I lost my damn mind I said no shade to Groot (laughs) shade Groot shade him unlike Groot she was elegant and classy you know she she was a real lady (laughs) Like Groot. But it is true. It is very different from Groot. It's so different. I wow. Okay, so I had a final exam presentation thing while this was happening. So this is my first time hearing this. Yeah. Gagged. But I, I seeing the screener, it did not even occur to me that there was any amount of practical effects that would have went into that tree. 
because it is so <laughs> deeply enmeshed in the texture uh -huh. of the actual physical tree yes. that she's coming out of. Talk about collaboration. The collaboration. visual effects, makeup, costume design, even the production design to locate that tree, you know? Yeah. People who are finding the set. Like, I love... <laughs> I love art so much. I love TV and film and movies and musicals and everything that cre allows creative people from all these different specific skill sets to work together to do something like make a woman a tree. That is what humanity is yeah. on this earth for. Everything she said is right too. Like oh, God, her she being is like so stop production, cool. you have to stand up. Yes, she said halt. <laughs> halt. Literally halt. Can't you just the see lines. her running up with like a like a pin cushion and like a tape measure around her neck? Like, wow. Yes. Oh, oh. so so good. It's such a joke too. Like, yes. The idea of the person playing the tree in your high school drama production that is the stereotype. That is the laugh line. Yeah. And then I was a tree. It's a piece of cardboard or something, yeah. you know? And she said no. No, she said elegance. Not Groot. We have another clip of Tish because <laughs> we have been throughout our readings of these books, literally from the very beginning, saying this these book series, these books, oh my God, it's 3.30 now. These books, 3.30 a.m., <laughs> these books are a 2006 period piece. So we have always been questioning whether the series would also be a early 2000s period piece. Um, and somebody, this wasn't us, asked about making like, you know, sort of classic costumes. Um, and this is Tish talking about making something that doesn't age and, and is not set in a specific period. The producers and director had, you know, said to me, I've mentioned this in a, a couple of the other interviews that, you know, when in doubt, go to the book. So of course I, I read the book. Uh, Rick Riordan himself said that he wasn't going to be, you know, slavish about it being, you know, specifically as, as described, because understanding that the books were written in, you know, 2003, 2004, and now it was 2023. But my attitude was, was that there are some design elements that you find, for instance, like Walker's plaid, you know, shirt jacket, it was based on a 1950s original design, but I had, I wanted to modernize it just by changing like the shape of a collar, but you're going to find a plaid jacket, you know, in any decade, you know, from the, you know, the twenties, thirties onward. And so I originally would go to the book and if it was an idea that I loved and the directors loved and the writers loved, then I would stick with it. But if it needed any kind of modification, then I would come up with an alternative. And sometimes the our you know producers and director would have a wish list of what their favorite things were. Like James, our director, loved corduroy and he loved stripes and and Dan and, and John really wanted to have a hat for Medusa because they didn't want to go with the way that she was described in the, in the book. Okay, this is, we're going to segue now back to showrunners. Um, I asked, um, knowing that I'm sure Dan and John and James taught the kids so much on set, um, I asked, what did the kids teach them? What kind of lessons did they learn from the trio? And this was their response. <laughs> learned felt 
validated by the choice we made early on to not treat them like kids. Um, in terms of, I mean, they went to school and they were nice to have them. Like, <laughs> and we followed all the rules, right? But I mean, um, there was there was not a single scene that was written in any way other than would have been written for an adult performer because of a fear that the kids couldn't do it. And I've directed a lot of young actors, and one of the first things I said to these guys was that you don't treat them any differently because they have the capability of an understanding to interpret your notes and listen to what you're saying and act accordingly. And that seems to work to me because they really do understand way more than you could ever give them credit for, which is brilliant. And that's just a way that you get a performance out of these people who aren't sometimes looking where they can do. And it just happens because they are, they can understand you and they can tell your notes. And that's just great. So I think treat them equals, I basically. And I'm going to say something very obvious, but it was something that was, was given to us every day on set is you know we worked with a lot of adults for many many seasons <laughs> some more challenging than others um and uh, uh and have had wonderful experiences throughout our careers but there was something about the energy and the joy every day when you arrive at six seven in the morning and everyone's tired from the day before and you walk onto set and there are these three wonderful people laughing, being silly, excited about the day ahead, can't wait to jump on the back of a giant blue minotaur or really getting excited about a deep emotional scene on a train car, in a train car. Um, and I didn't realize myself until, as, as we were like week after week after we shot for 160 days and that never stopped once. And so for me personally, having to, you know, I had to leave my family to go up to Vancouver, uh, the sacrifices we make for this job, because it can be very, there's a lot of travel and crazy hours that every day we got to go to set and laugh and smile and be happy to walk in there every day that's what i took the most from from them which is just like oh this can be awesome at all times um because that's how they were feeling um and that was absolutely contagious yeah on that very very sweet note I think it's time we segue into a little Percy Beth. <laughs> so trying to ask questions about Percy and Annabeth's relationship dynamic during the press junket for the Lightning Thief season is tough because obviously we're like, well, we believe Chris Beth is the greatest love story ever told, but what we're curious about is how do you establish the basis of this relationship? And we don't just mean romantic relationship. We mean like this partnership that gets laid out and developed very yes. much so in this book. Um, so one of the things I was able to ask Jeff was about creating the tunnel of love. So Jeff, is, Jeff White is one of the VFX supervisors for the show. Um, and the tunnel of love sequence, we haven't seen in any, you know, we haven't seen that scene yet, but it is featured a little bit in some of the trailers where you can see Percy Nanabeth like floating um, in this like big dark pool of water. So I wanted to ask about creating that set, which I assumed was created in the volume um, and how they established this location that is like very specific and awkward and intimate um, for Percy and Annabeth to like have like a very awkward moment together as as friends. Yeah, it's a really emotional scene 
that happens there um but uh, between our two between um Percy and Annabeth and um you know our actors just did a phenomenal job like at the end of the day we're sort of building all this technology around them but they really pulled it off and I think again for them what was fantastic is that instead of sitting in a water tank with blue screen all around they were actually could see the tunnel around them they could see the animation playback live and for our director it was it was a really tricky scene because there was a lot of choreography between the music and uh the animation that was playing back that tells a story as they travel down the tunnel <clears throat> so we had control set up where we could run a long take and then reset to a specific part of the action and have the actors watch that again and do a specific performance for it. But logistically, it was actually really great um, to essentially be working um, in a in a in a tank where the world moved around us because that opened up ideas for shots that we may not have had otherwise. For instance, uh, there's there was one where as soon as we were in there and we were seeing the world around us uh, on the volume wall, the uh, cinematographer, Pierre Gill, put the camera up and we did a shot of it reflecting off of the water underneath the kids. And it was so beautiful. And I don't think we ever would have even considered a shot like that if we were shooting on blue screen. Shout out to our bestie, Sonia from ILM for coordinating everything in we the volume. It was lovely. She's and tell so us, sweet. Talk to us about this. We also... We also had a lovely conversation with Zoe, who I believe is an associate producer on the show. With with Dan and John, like works with Dan and John. Yes. Someone who is a young person who was intimately involved in the writing and production process, who had a lot to say about the Tunnel of Love and how Persebeth instantiates in season one, which is something that I think other people did not necessarily have as much to say about or have as much of the way into. So that was very exciting. We're ready to see it. We haven't seen it yet. Episode five, that's not part of the screener package. Yeah, but we're excited. It's been really hyped up to us. And so I was glad that I got to ask a little bit about how they shot that scene. I know. We've yeah. also, I feel like you have talked to me about the volume a lot. Like going back to the Mandalorian when that came out in mm -hmm. maybe 2018, 2019 or something, you were like, they're using this new production technology. It's wild. Acting is different now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when they very first started talking about filming Percy Jackson and we were like, oh, they're going to film it in the volume. I could dig through our episodes and find that receipt from when we were <laughs> like, I mean, they have to film it in the volume, right? It is. I mean, I, I didn't clip this because everyone is going to pick up on this audio clip from the press conference. But like, obviously, when you're shooting a series that takes place across the entire country, like the best possible and most cost effective, efficient way to film, especially with a cast of kids, is to use the volume where you can recreate all of those iconic places without having to travel around and like be on location all the time. And without, as they pointed out in this long clip using green screen or blue screen or something mm -hmm. else that doesn't allow people to have things to interface with, yeah. to be able to like understand mm -hmm. yeah. the environments. Yeah, they do. And they do still use blue screens here and there. Like they use a lot of blue screens, I think when they were doing Camp Half-Blood. So like Becky, <laughs> Becky talks about walking around and like going into the Hermes cabin and spending some time in there. But then you're walking around like the camp set, which is like on location. And then you walk by just like a giant blue screen where they're going <laughs> to like put another cabin in later. So it's very, yeah, the craft of it is, is very interesting. Yeah. And I think that tees up the big purse bath of it all. Yes. I think we should listen to Brett ask our question because I actually think it's really funny here. <laughs> 
So one of the podcasts, uh, their mission is to talk about Persica, the relationship. Ah. This is the greatest mm. of all time. So they've asked if you would weigh in on that and just kind of talk about how you've seen that kind of change and yeah. what's the most important thing you felt that had to be between the, the cast and, and the, that dynamic? Well, first season, I mean, we got two 12-year-olds. And as the readers know, there is really no Persebeth until the right. fifth book. So this it's is a slow burn, right? It's a <laughs> slow burn. Uh, I, I will say that Persebeth, you're looking at them. I mean, right. they are based on our personal relationship. Uh, as Becky said, we've been together since we were 16. I, I, I laugh because, you know, obviously the, the fans really, um, Persebeth is very important to them. And like, oh, why would Percy say certain things? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's Rick. <laughs> you know? Guilty, right? The way I, I I gooped and I gasped and I giggled so hard when Becky used this as an opportunity to shade Rick. Oh my God, it was so funny. I, when we were drafting these questions in a little Google Doc with all the other podcasters, we had a bunch of bullet points and one of them under the question was, somebody says, word on the street. Little Birdie said, Persebeth is based on you two. In but, comment? Yeah. But then they didn't ask that as well, part of the question, and they, we didn't submit that as part of the question, They said right? no personal questions, which we all interpreted differently. I was thinking, like, don't ask any personal questions that, like, you've always wanted to ask them, you know? Like, questions for yourself. And like, then, is the personal you or is the personal yeah, them? But then one of her other friends was like, oh, I was thinking personal them. Like, what's your address? Or, like, <laughs> <laughs> what's your or zodiac like, sign? Like, How would you characterize a relationship between yeah, the two of you? Would you say your relationship is this relationship? Yeah. Anyway, but they ended up answering it themselves. Um, which fully volunteered so that information yeah. and oh delightful I also okay this is personal hobby horse there's been discussion about this you've heard Rick and Becky in that clip several times say Persebeth wow. did they say Perkabeth listener I don't believe so and you can you can you can roll the tape back on that one Carter Carter obviously feels strongly about this I have stopped feeling strongly about it um Every, we say everything wrong, so if other people want to say this wrong, that's okay. I'm giggling about it. You know, like, I'm not... <laughs> we, we will not be meeting in a parking lot to, to yeah. hash out disagreements yeah. about this. I I'm will just say there's no hard K sound in either of their names. And that's that on that. That's that on that. <laughs> the clip exists. The Maybe clip we exists. Maybe them. But, like, we didn't put a pronunciation guide in the question. There you go. <laughs> um, I think we have to include a couple other Rick being very sweet moments. I have to say that uh, when we ask our own sons who they would want as a godly parent, they say, why would I want a mom who's a goddess? I have Becky, <laughs> which is totally true. Totally fair. Best Thank mom you. right here. Mm. Sally Jackson, supreme. <laughs> okay, so I know we said we were going to end on the Persebeth note and the Rick and Becky of it all, but we did get to meet Arian tonight and speak with him. And he's such a little musical theater nerd um, and so sweet and wonderful. And we got to share with him what we talked about on yesterday's episode. If you listen to our Chalice of the Gods finale, that I have suddenly become a Grover stan because I feel like I read the Chalice of the Gods and Grover's character is very different. He's funnier. And that is partially me reading it in Arian's voice. And I think Rick writing it in Arian's voice. And I was like, am I making this up? But then here is Becky yeah, I think we alluded to this in the episode yesterday, but... I may have cut it. It's embargo day. Yeah, now we can actually talk about it. Okay. Um, what I loved about the process of making the show was that it gave me um, a great foundation for writing The Chalice of the Gods, which was the first Percy Jackson book 
like proper from his point of view Percy Jackson book that I've written in 14 years. And so one thing informed the other. As I was rediscovering Percy's voice, we were rediscovering how to present that voice in a TV show. And uh, Becky uh, pointed out when she read The Chalice of the Gods that... That, that um, Grover's voice is so strong in there um, that Rick had, had learned how Arian, you know, delivers his lines. And it, yeah. and it was just amazing seeing the character come to life that way. Yeah. One last, one more, one more Arian clip, <laughs> one more Arian clip. And, right. and wonderfully um, appropriate for Ariane to play Grover because he's been on stage in New York. Yeah. Um, so to have him be able to do a little singing, I would love to see more of it. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pitch for that in season two. Um, I would love to see him be able to, to utilize his voice. Yeah, we can do like Star Trek and make it a musical episode. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I suppose we'll see whether the Lotus Hotel and Casino is a musical episode or if Arian will sing more in the future. He did say tonight that his dream role is Hermes in Hades Town. Um, Which is I, an iconic answer. I really, really see that in the future. In the revival, maybe, you know? Or in the movie musical of Hades Town. That's not happening, by the way. I'm making that up. I'm making that up. But Hey, your lips to all of the many Disney executives who listen to this podcast, yours. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you guys for joining us for this very chaotic embargo lift episode. I hope that the audio levels are somewhat normalized and even, um, and that we didn't blast out anyone's ears with the Zoom audio and the transitioning back and forth. Um, and that our audio is fine because we are... Sharing in a mic. Erica's apartment yeah. at 4 a.m. Oh, my God. <laughs> guys, I'm catching a flight in four hours. I... <laughs> This has been one of the best, wonderfulest, most specialist, excitingest, awesomest weeks of my life. And it's been very magical. And when I say magical, I don't, you know, I, I think that that statement would erase the, the work that went into it. Sure. There's been a lot of work, but it's yeah. also been like so ethereal because I've been half awake the entire time from not sleeping. So it is very mystical and ethereal. But um, that being said, this was a small snippet of a lot of what we heard um, from the past week of interviews. And um, we didn't have any, like we said, specific one-on-one -on -one interviews, so we don't have any specific exclusives. Um, so we just wanted to give everybody a taste into what was said this week, especially for our listeners who have been so excited for the show for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been taking for granted how involved we've been. And I know that like any piece of news is probably really exciting. Um, and also just to celebrate like less than a week from today, the show starts airing. So, We're so close to it. And it's really good. And everyone should be very really excited. Good. <laughs> and that was our vague review. So we're really looking forward to extremely, extremely <laughs> detailed, in-depth, specific. I believe Becky said also in our uh, little podcast pod Zoom day, she was like, I think that there are going to be fans out there who pause the show and rewind it a million times to look at specific screen grabs. And I was like, oh yes, I did do that. <laughs> I've already done that. I'm prepared. I've got bullet points. I'm really excited to do insanely deep dive analyses into these episodes with y'all, with some guests. Yeah. And hopefully we're going to have a series of pretty awesome special guests in the future. As a reminder, next week, Wednesday at 12 a.m. PST. So that's Tuesday night. 
Uh, we will be streaming live on YouTube. Uh, that link is in our show notes. If you want to watch along as we watch the episode with a bunch of our friends who have never seen it yet and may have no interest in Percy Jackson at all. Some do, <laughs> some don't. You can join us there um, if you don't want to watch alone. And then after that, uh, Wednesday morning, shortly after, we will have an deep dive analysis episode on episode one out available for everybody to hear on Spotify. And then that following Friday, we will have episode two deep dive released on Spotify and wherever else you're listening to this podcast now. And then the schedule for every week after that will be Wednesday evening, Patreon live stream watch alongs with a variety of special guests and Friday morning deep dive and analysis episodes also with special guests. I think that's all I have to say. I think that we need to close out by shouting out Charlie's mom. Oh <laughs> my God. Nicole Bushnell, you're our hero. <laughs> I cannot even begin to describe the elation I felt closing off our evening by getting to meet Charlie's mom, who said that she listens to our podcast and then her husband coming by to corroborate and say, yes, she does listen to your podcast all the time. It, it gagged us so hard. I literally, like to a level I have not been gagged since Maddie, who won trivia, and her dad I've Tom came into our lives. Like the, the parental validation that we received in that interaction changed my life. So it was really great meeting their entire family. <laughs> Shout out to them. Hi. So literally, I Luke stands. Okay. <laughs> I really fear, but I'm also excited to regress back into being a severe Luke Stan because <laughs> of the incredible performance that Charlie Bushnell is giving. Yeah, it'll. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll all be, all on be the there journey together. together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. It's 4 a.m. in New York City. Carter and I oh. went to the Met tonight. We really did. It was yeah. As we said as we were heading out, among the sillier things we've ever done in our life. And But also a great experience. And I I I I can't believe we made it there. I, I'm really <laughs> proud of us. We had intentions and reflections and meditation time as we were walking to the Met. And I'm really impressed and confused that it's been three and a half years and we somehow have been included in the celebration and i feel like we've been included in this little like post-production era of the show and that's really special to just feel like you're a part of something yeah that you care about a lot so, and that a lot of people care about a lot a lot of people and thank you guys for being here and sharing this with us and let's have an awesome exciting run of the show let us know what you think reach out to us with any questions and we'll talk to you guys later bye y'all bye <laughs>